everyone. Thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. From injury prevention, common training fallacies, how diet and exercise really affect aging, and so much more. Dr. Keith Barr takes us on a ride through what the muscular system is really capable of and how the future of science hopes to harness that power. Here, Barr's detailed explanation of how our bodies process proteins from plant and animal sources and the research that is currently being done now on this hot topic. John is full of questions, and Dr. Barr obliges with some incredible explanations. You're going to want to sober up for this one. Here it is, episode 352. Nation. This is Luke and Tex and special featured friend, friend of the podcast, John, John Wellborn. Wellborn, CEO, founder of Power Athlete, ten-year starter in the NFL, Chiefs, Eagles, Patriots, hundred career starts, ten playoff appearances, and reads a lot of research in his spare time, so that when you come on there, you don't feel like a total moron. That's true because it is time for another rip roaring episode of the Premier Podcast in. Strength and conditioning. Ing. I prefer face melters. Like face this, melting. This one, it was a like a melting. face melter. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about cheeseburger-fueled rocket jets made of human muscle today. Seriously. Legit, legitimately. Because you know... Is that, talk- like, is that similar to maybe Texas Red Rocket? Ooh, that's actually... At the bar when Texas is out there with the ladies. You're man. talking about... <laughs> the Red Rocket. You're talking about between the sheets? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I was mm-hmm. talking about at the bar. Oh, yeah, same thing. Uh, <laughs> at least. You don't even know what that is. You've never even had a dog. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mm. think he has an idea. Mm. <laughs> Ladies, and what else are we talking about? How jerks, I like how like the, the, the scientific term for the amortization phase is a jerk. Yeah. Now it can ruin everything. Jerks ruin everything. Those are my two big takeaways and eat fish skin. <laughs> Do you eat fish skin? No. I, like, I've been th- I feel like an idiot um, now for throwing it away. Uh, I'm just telling you, like Ugh. my kids crush like like we had uh we were like i cooked some chickens the other day and um in the in the oven and the kids were fighting over the fish or over the chicken skin and i'm like Ugh, i hate chicken skin but maybe now i'm gonna crush the chicken skin i don't mind chicken skin but the i'd like turkey skin so when we cook turkeys Mm-hmm. Like like when we cook a turkey on Thanksgiving, like that turkey skin to me is amazing. Yeah, I'll, especially I'll when that. you deep fry it in coconut oil. Uh, I was going to say when the skin is cooked under a layer of stay classy bacon, mm-hmm. like this past mm-hmm. Thanksgiving. Realistically, it's really good. Anything that stay classy sends that I cook is usually fantastic. Even the chicken breast. I, you know, they when mm-hmm. I got a they box... They sent me fish fillets and they're pretty good. So when I got a box, it, it had chicken breast and I waited till the last... Like it was the last <laughs> thing in the freezer. And it's just like I'm looking at Ashley and I'm like, do we just... Like, do we throw it away or what? And we cooked them up, man, and they're a, a billion times better than just the, you know, H-E-B chicken breasts. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And that's when it, that's why I got back on the bird. So, uh... I, uh, some irony with this podcast is, um, you know how we were talking about like maybe, you know, joining some different forums and Reddit and trying to get on there and like, you know, help some mm-hmm. people with some misconceptions. So I, uh, I have gotten into, you know, obviously cause we hunt here in Texas, but also into long range shooting. So I joined some forum that was big into long range shooting and they had a fitness area. So I went on and they were, this guy was asking questions about protein. Huh. So I went on there, um, as not me, but alias, whatever, you know, and uh, started just kind of going through like, hey, protein. And um, the amount of pushback that I was getting from people 
uh, about like, you know, protein and, and, and just being like, like as I'm, as I'm in there and I'm thinking like, I'm having this you know conversation with people who are, I'm like, dude, we not only have a podcast, but this is all we've done in terms of building huh. muscle protein and talking to the smartest people. And it's pretty amazing to hear people's misconceptions that, you know, all proteins are created equal and yet we have, so are you trolling a little bit? Um, not really. Like is my, that like something that you're used to doing is like setting up alias accounts on forums and social media and photoshopping. Mm-hmm. Is this something that you used to uh, do? Penguin. Oh, <laughs> the, the fact that you're pushing the penguin on me means that you are the mm-hmm. penguin. Mm-hmm. If that's if uh, that's the fact, you've been literally doing the same thing for the past six months, so that would make you the penguin. Well, uh, John, actually, what John, I'm a, he's turning red. Well, what I'm a little upset red. about is that we're paying you to be the penguin. So I'm I'm technically funding the penguin. Mm. Power athlete is funding the penguin because Luke cashes his checks. Uh-huh. So he just better hope we don't find out. He better not slip up. Bring it. The, I, when honestly, you slip have up, zero concern about this because you're the penguin. <laughs> <laughs> Text. What was my theory the other day that Jay Welly let it slip that he's the penguin? Do you remember? This is this is called deflecting. This no, is no, no. what guilty people do. Oh, okay. Uh, look at uh, Dante Wilder. Like, you po- understand. Like po- poking fingers, pointing fingers at everybody but himself. That's literally what, you, literally what you've been doing every time we bring up the Penguin, is talking about how it's everyone else but yourself. You understand the hypocrisy here. No, I'm telling you <laughs> that, that I'm uh, not okay. the Penguin, <laughs> that you are the Penguin. Classic Penguin rhetoric. No, no, what did, I'm telling you, man, when, when uh, uh, Heptonstall and I have been discussing it, and mm-hmm. when we find him, we're going to get him. Yeah. A very and, and special he's probably, set of skills. He's, he's, yeah. We're going to send somebody out that has a special skill set that nobody slap, wants to yeah. slap you with a bag of fish skin. <laughs> uh, uh, penguin you're, skin. You're going to get hit with a bag of oranges. What is the protein? We should have, you know, I was going to get into like the, the obscure protein, animal protein sources. And like, uh, remember when that someone Isn't was trying Gator to, the bet, like the most, well, that was something I claimed that no, has nothing. He's just, yeah, he's yeah, just I saw on a headline. Right? So if, if you look at like, uh, my, remember when I we just did a research on the most nutrient dense form of red meat and it's you, I think it's elk. It's like elk and it's like the large wild game, like elk or, uh, caribou and you know, like the things that like the wolves mm-hmm. really hunt, like tend to be the best uh, ones. And then, um, and then remember when there was like a thing Buffalo, Buffalo. about cricket protein or something like yeah, that? Yeah, there was a uh, Rob Wolf was pushing, had a deal. He sent me a bunch of these uh, cricket protein. And funny enough, I wrote uh, a research paper in college for an entomology class that I took that the way I was going to solve world hunger was actually through insects. Insects. So okay. the, uh, the amount of protein per insect is greater per pound than it is for any other uh, mm-hmm. deal. The problem is, is, and actually my paper recommended crickets because of how fast they turn over and how easy they are to grow and, and the protein is, is, uh, is, is pretty easy. And when you crush them up, the bones have collagen and some other things in them. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I like the, the, the cricket protein bars. Uh, I think what they tried to do is get into like maybe like a way, almost like a scoopable shaker protein. And I think they should have just stayed with the bars. They have it on Amazon here. So you're saying we need to eat crickets and fish skin. Like what is this world coming to? If I have to do it, I'll do it. But I'd I'd probably rather eat crickets and fish skin over like cow kidney. Do you know who else eats fish skin? Penguins. Mm. Mm. You're not wrong. They eat fish whole. So I'm... uh, 
Mm-hmm. Great, great collagen levels in the penguin. <laughs> <laughs> but late, man, we have spun way out of, well, I guess not really. It's all in the same lane because no. there's all this stuff spinning around all this amazing opportunity that we just don't grasp because we get stuck in our ruts and we uh, listen to the shiny bells and whistles. And today we've got uh, Dr. Keith, Dr. Keith Barr from UC Davis, professor at UC Davis. Also a Berkeley grad. Woo, go bears. Go bears. And uh, yeah, shout out to Mike Robertson who was able to connect us. He's got an awesome mm-hmm. podcast. John, right was. now, Mike Robertson is going to forward us the email. It's like, I can't believe you recommended me to go on those dipshits podcast. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, we get this super switched on guy who's super accomplished, has put and in Luke's a, over there trying to figure out how to like, make a cow snake. Yeah, snake cow. And guess what? It's possible. They know how to do it, and it's not crazy, and it's going to happen. You're going to thank me when beef rib prices at Valentina's go down from $22 a pound to $6 a God pound. dang, they have a good beef rib. Yeah, imagine oh. if they just had a, a snake cow. Man, uh, <laughs> I went there with Jesse Burdick and JL after the oh, yeah? uh, after the RPR deal on Saturday night. We went over to Valentina's, and it was good because we got out there. Thank God we got like... Um, so first of all, the beef rib was sold out by the time we got there because we got there after. So, But they still had brisket, not so I was able to get brisket taco and then i was also able to get um some pork ribs which are pretty good but snake ribs oh mm-hmm. man uh, valentina's is legit yes absolutely but ladies and gentlemen strap yourself in for a pretty gritty like it, it's it's detailed but totally digestible well because i think uh um he was able to explain it yes. in such a way, which as he was talking, I'm like, you know, this guy teaches classes, totally. maybe not That's to undergrads, yeah. Yeah. but I, I felt like, uh, and you know, he, I mean, talk know. about the wormholes he opened too, because he provides you all the authors of the stuff he's citing. Oh yeah. So you well, can there is col- well, stuff. there is colleagues. Mm-hmm. So, so the, man, what a great podcast. Uh, home run, home run. Face Anything melter. else? Oh, this podcast is brought to you by power athlete radio. It is, uh, March 20th, if you are one of the the thousands of people who download on day one. And you're not leaving us a five-star review. Yeah. What's wrong? Well, What's wrong I, with you? And if it's, listen, maybe your Super Bowl is the same as our Super Bowl, right? We don't celebrate the Super Bowl on Super Bowl Sunday. It's on St. Patrick's Day. So maybe you're working a little oh, slow. Oh, no, that's not the Super Bowl. That's <laughs> our Super Bowl, not the Super Bowl. Yes, and maybe you're you're on that train and you're a little slow. You had too many Guinnesses, maybe a couple shots of whiskey. Things are just slow at the office. Guess what? You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, and you're going to pop on your little iPhone right now. What do you got, Tex? Well, after you smash that subscribe button, go to the reviews mm-hmm. because our latest one is very good. Oh, it, yeah? Is it from the Penguin? A.K.A. Luke. Maybe. This is from... I can't wait to find this guy. Girl, sign in <laughs> log. This sounds like John. Sign in log, girl dad coach. So girl dad is a popular uh, hashtag right now. But true performance podcast, five stars. I've been a coach for many years working personal training, gen pop, as well as high school strength and sport. The range of personality and interest and training level is vast for all these populations and i feel the crew of john luke and tex do an incredible <laughs> job driving into a grab bag of movies stories sports and training guidance that i bring to conversation with my my circles i guess his, his friends and clients tip of the cap to expanding my interest and understanding of being human with different authors and world-class coaches from all levels and experiences looking forward to 2020's run that's right, people. Wow. So even if you're a cyborg, we'll teach you how to be human, or at least more human. 
Like a real robot boy? (laughs) (laughs) So, ladies and gentlemen, I guess enough banter and blab on us, right? Uh, I feel like we're really clicking. You know what? We should just extend this podcast for another 12 hours. I'm good. Yeah, no, I'm fine. Let's go. Okay. Unless you want to. No, I'm good. I got to go weld. Ah, that's right. Welding I got to weld some boxes today. Um, All right. Enough about us. Let's talk to Dr. Barr. Welcome to Power Athlete Radio, man. First and foremost, thank you so much for jumping on. Um... Sounds like we phoned a friend to ho- to get you on in hopes of talking about something that the big guy here has really been digging into recently. So this is going to be a heck of a conversation, I think. So do you, just before we get going, do you have any hard stops or anything you got to bounce out of here that we need to be cognizant on time? No, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good for the morning. I, I got a meeting at 11, but I think that we had said that that was clear. So that should be fine. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, the uh, I guess where all this started was uh, through Ken Ford. Um, I don't know, okay. you know, the Institute of Humi- Human and Machine Cognition. It's a DARPA-funded research group, and Ken asked me to come speak on, you know, building muscle and something that's important to him with sarcopenia. And right. it started me down this <laughs> really interesting uh, quest to understand not only, uh, and I think it was actually um, um, an actuarian table or chart that I saw that was able to predict death based on losing muscle and strength. And, you know, I kind of deduced that it was, you know, your ability to maintain strength and muscle seems to be your greatest ally in starving off death and just about everything. And the people that can maintain muscle mass the longest tend to live the longest. And then, uh, I'm, you know, father of three and I'm 43 and, uh, played in the NFL and have trained my whole life. And, um, it just seems like there's these, uh, kind of interesting group of fathers, and mothers over the age of 40 that really just struggle in the idea of like continuing to put on muscle and this idea that, you know, perpetuated through the internet and media and whatnot, that you can't put on muscle past a certain age. And it's something only for young people. And I think, well, we've really worked to disprove that. And so that's what kind of wraps us back to you. All right. Yeah. So all of that's true. Um, Probably the best and the first thing was uh, World Health Organization basically said, that uh, the stronger you are at midlife, the, the longer you live. There's a couple of nice scientific studies. One's uh, over 45 years they've been studying Hawaiians, and they show that um, those Hawaiians who are in the strongest third of the population are uh, two and a half times more likely to make it to 100 years of age than somebody who is not in the strongest third. And that's and everybody says exercise and longevity but the people who were aerobically fit only had a 10 percent increase in longevity or 10 percent more likely to make it to 100 in that case so so it really is so when you're looking for longevity strength is a key component of it and so we know for example that 30 percent of people who die from cancer are actually dying from the cachexia that's associated they're not dying from cancers of disease so when you lose strength to the point where you can't do your activities of daily living, that's when, that's when, basically quality of life definitely goes away. But also, that's that's the beginning of the end to life in general. So, well, we we found a couple of things to be uh, interestingly true, which. Like I, I've always believed that there's kind of a periodization within your diet as you age, uh, the diet has to change that I think, uh, as we go on, maybe our ability to process carbohydrate kind of goes down and our need for more protein. So I know as people tend to age, you know, we usually stick around one gram of protein per pound of body weight here. Power athlete is a recommendation, but I find for some of my uh, older athletes, 40 plus, I try to push them to eat, you know, a little bit more and found that they tend to do better on a higher, on even, even higher protein diet. 
and then kind of limiting, like, um, you know, breaking it up. And I found two things. Um, I, I did a talk for the NSCA on metabolic flexibility. And two of the interesting points I found is as we age, you lose metabol or you lose mitochondrial density. So the volume decreases and then also the ability to recruit motor units. So looking back, I was like, well, all right, so if we can lift heavy, heavy weights and continue to develop a big aerobic base, it should allow us to continue on. And uh, the market we're in, and especially the market today, seems so hell-bent on like, uh, you know, HIT-type training, which is, you know, largely glycolytic, that I just don't see the value for a ton of glycolytic work in, in as people age. Well, so even though a HIT activity is glycolytic, the signals actually increase mitochondrial and increase in endurance. So Marty Gabal has shown really clearly that if you do four to six sessions of HIT, you can get the same increase in muscle mitochondrial density and mitochondrial mass as you would get from doing 60 to 90 minutes continuous exercise. So if you do that over a three-week period. So that's pretty clear. The only thing is that um, those are always done in cycling because it's a body weight supported activity. So as you increase the, the mechanical stress of running faster, if you were to run, as you get older, that's when that becomes a little bit more um, difficult because we increase stiffness, we increase other things that make us more prone to injury. So there's a whole lot that goes into um, what you're calling metabolic flexibility. Uh, basically, we would say that as you get older, one of the big things that happens is you, you lose insulin sensitivity. And so, yes, your, your food, you need, you're needing more protein for, some, for part of it. But part of the reason that you need more protein is because the signals that are getting into your muscle cells and into the blood vessels that are going to open the blood vessels to allow protein to get to your muscles, those signals are decreasing as we age through insulin, you know, becoming insulin resistant. And so we've shown in animals really clearly that when you exercise, when you do resistance exercise in an old animal, the initial response, protein synthetic response is perfectly good. The, the problem happens later on when you're going out 24 hours later when a young person, if you lifted weights yesterday, every time you eat for the next at least 24 hours, we know that you're going to increase protein synthesis greater in those muscles that you exercised than if you hadn't exercised those muscles. The, the problem is in older individuals, we don't seem to see that. And that's really where we think is a really important difference for older individuals. Because what we would normally expect is that that kind of increased anabolic signal due to food later, 24 hours after you've done your exercise, is a little bit more dependent on the insulin signaling components of it. So if you don't have good insulin sensitivity, now you can't start the cascade, which is going to cause that meal that you just ate to cause increased muscle protein synthesis to the same degree. And so what we see in older individuals is that, you know, this idea of an anabolic window becomes a little bit more of a reality. So in a young person, doesn't matter, 24, 48 hours, no problem. If you go back to the original studies that started the whole idea of the anabolic window, they were done out of, um, out of Denmark by Michael Kerr. And what they did is they took- I never bought into it. I never bought into the anabolic window. But if you look at it, <laughs> what they did is they took old people. Uh, uh, so you haven't always been old, John. You know, you're just getting old now. <laughs> Fuck you. Remember when you were young? And- <laughs> That's one. You, you can you can write down uh, 
um, I'm not a resolutionist, but I tried. My goal on this podcast is not to use so much profanity, unless it's extremely pointed, like telling him to go f off. No, that that one counts. It does not count. I'll give you a gimme on that. It was it was warranted. Uh, all right, sorry, we derailed you, and you were about to fucking split yeah, away. So, so what you've got is in in a young person. Yeah, the window isn't real because you've got good insulin sensitivity. You've got all these other things, and those things come together to give you a long anabolic window. In an older person, we don't, who's got less insulin sensitivity, less What's the mechanism, Doc? Uh, not to cut you off, but can you get back into like the mechanism a little bit? I mean, um, I know that, uh, you know, the, the more muscle you carry in relation to body fat, the more insulin sensi- sensitive you are. I just didn't know if there was other signals outside of just, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Baseline activity is a big component of it. So if you look at where you see anabolic resistance to exercise and food, if the studies are done in Holland by Luke Van Loon, there's no anabolic resistance. Muscle mass grows really beautifully in old people. If you do that same study in Galveston's Texas um, with Blake Rasmussen, or you do it in, um, in England uh, with, in the past, Mike Rennie or, or people there, they see anabolic resistance. The difference is that the Dutch are much more active. They're much more insulin sensitive. They're much better metabolically so when we look for anabolic resistance, we're seeing it in one population, but or in the US and in England, where you've got more obesity, more inactivity, and where you don't have those things, these guys, yeah, they're 70 years old, but they're biking everywhere, yeah. they're they're lean, they're all of these things. Now they can grow muscle mass just perfectly fine. Hmm. So, and so is that just from is that just from them like uh, could it be vitamin D outside or just basically just a healthy life? I mean, I know you've been to Holland, so you know if you walk down the street, you're going to get hit by old people on bikes and young people on bikes. Yeah, so it's just a daily activity, any, and you're not going to get any vitamin D because there's no sun. So, so yeah. it, it's not going to be it's not as simple as something like that. What it is is just an overall. We know that when you when you do exercise and you contract the muscle, that's going to drive glucose into your muscle without the need for insulin. When you're doing, if you're not doing exercise and you've got lots of caloric, you're going to, basically what we show in animals is you lose the first proteins that allow insulin to signal in. So there's a protein called the insulin receptor substrate and that's IRS1. It's the first thing that the insulin receptor interacts with that allows the signal to come in. And what we see in, in animals is that, that the amount of that protein goes down by about tenfold between kind of adult like our peak of our our muscle size and even just twice that age so it would be like 60 year old 50 year old individual you see this drop that's almost a tenfold drop and interestingly so at 24 months you get almost none of this protein and at 32 months it seems to come up but what we think is happening is the only animals that are surviving are the animals that had that protein in the first place Hmm. so it's like a survivor effect so if you have more of that protein that allows every time you eat, your insulin can signal, open up blood vessels, deliver those amino acids to your muscle, and your muscle can stay big and strong. If you don't have that protein, you can't get the insulin response to open up the blood vessels and deliver the protein. That's why the anabolic window is more important in old people, because what the anabolic window is, is not about anything to do with what's happening in the muscle cell itself. It's about how you're delivering the amino acids. So in an older person, if they're less insulin responsive or in a diabetic who's young, what's going to happen is you're going to eat. You don't get the insulin response to open up those 
blood vessels, you don't deliver the amino acids. So if you've got an older person who's fit or you've got a young person, what happens is that now you're opening those blood vessels, you're delivering amino acids, no anabolic window. As you lose that, now you need the exercise to cause the blood vessels to open. And so all you're doing with exercise, all you're doing, the anabolic window is just a delivery system. It's just, how are you delivering amino acids? We deliver amino acids using blood flow. If you exercise, you increase blood flow to the muscles that you worked. We all know that because you, know, you see Friday afternoon, all the guys are at the gym because they're gonna go out Friday night. They wanna look good in their tight shirt. So they're going because they're gonna get the bump. It's the club that bump, Doc. Pump. We call it the club it's, pump. Yeah, that's Absolutely. our audience. Yeah, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And so that's a huge thing because we know that blood flow is going to increase. We're going to get this pump. We're going to, all the muscles we worked are going to be bigger. Now, if we just think about it, like that's our delivery system. That's our, that's our system to deliver amino acids. Now we know where all the amino acids are going. And so that's what you then need as an older person, if you're in, or an insulin resistant person, you need the exercise open up the blood vessels, deliver the amino acids. So now you can drive that protein synthesis response. So doc, you've said older person about, I don't know, 15, 20 times on the front end of training, when we say young athlete, right? We can't really rely on chronological age. McQuilkin's working with 14 year old kids right now with lacrosse and they differ in size by two feet and 40 pounds. So just the mechanics there are different in terms of young. So we don't use that chronological age. How do you qualify the, the older population? Is it, is it more reliable on an age basis there, or are there other things to evaluate, whether it's lifestyle factors or BMI, or I'll hand it over to you to let us know? Right. So I would do it by metabolic age. Mm -hmm. So there's young kids who are 10, 11 years of age who already have diabetes. I would consider them metabolically old. They're metabolically inflexible. They don't respond the way that you would expect. And a lot of that is already seen signs that we would consider aging. Mm -hmm. um, because that's, again, it's one of the key components of aging is that you have this shift metabolically that is going to mean potentially that you can't handle glucose or you can't handle carbohydrate as well. And you can't respond as well to things that are normally circulating in the blood. So I, you know, Stu Phillips always says that his definition of old always goes up one year every year. Hmm. So, so that it's always at least one year older than him. And I like it. it. It's totally true because I, you know, we, we get to that point where we're like, okay, yeah. Old people. It's always somebody else. It's never <laughs> us. Does uh, not that young. Does uh, non-mediated glu non glucose uptake have any effect in this? I mean, I know like, uh, you know, I've had diabetics and uh, type 2 diabetes or clients who, you know, are able to control their blood sugar with exercise. You know, they get a big <laughs> dose, it goes up. and Absolutely. So that's, again, this is the contraction-mediated increase of glucose uptake versus the insulin-mediated. There's two things that are happening when you're contracting the muscle. You're building up these metabolic waste products, and that causes the blood vessels to open up to get rid of them. That's going to increase delivery of glucose or carbohydrates to the muscle. And then you've got the contraction-induced glucose uptake, which is mediated in a different way from the insulin-stimulated one. They go parallel, and then they come together at a single, at a single step. But yeah, you can control 
if you have diabetes, you can use exercise as a way to control your blood glucose. It's one of the things that a diabetic would, would monitor because if they are suddenly have to do a bunch of activity, they need to then change how much insulin they're injecting. They need to watch their blood glucose, all of those things. And again, it lasts for longer than just the exercise period itself. So until glycogen is replenished, you're going to have increased glucose uptake that doesn't necessarily need insulin. So as you age, let's say, I mean, um, obviously, like it sounds like a cascading effect. You probably go up every decade and it's probably like orders of magnitude, you know, decrease. But uh, would it make sense that like, you know, maybe 40 is about the, the age where people all of a sudden this becomes an issue? But I mean, maybe historically, but now you're talking about 10 year old kids that are extremely metabolically inflexible that are old. So I'm just wondering. Um, but it's probably the extremes, too, right? Well, because we're a little smarter. Well, we looked it up yesterday and uh, what was it? 36 percent of America is deemed oh, yeah. obese. So, yeah, yeah uh, 36 percent prepping for this podcast. We were we were looking at like obesity in countries. And like I'm sure like you, you kind of throw out certain uh, studies that are done in countries that have 6% of the population are deemed as a, you know, a BMI of over 30. But right. I, I just wonder, um, at, at least in my research with the metabolic flexibility piece, I found that it, it, people can go from inflexible to flexible if they drop their body fat and the, and the muscle mass increases. That's, yeah, because again, what you're also doing is you're changing the, the body's ability to respond to its internal endocrine hormones. You're changing its ability to respond to its environment, to environmental changes. So, so it's absolutely true that you've got in this country about 37 people who are overweight or obese. You've also got 7% of kids in the United States who are stunted because they actually are malnourished. It doesn't mean they're undernourished. It means they're malnourished. Mm. And so you've got both of these groups. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive because a lot of people who are eating things that have no protein content they don't have, because a lot of kids will be on the white diet where they only eat white foods. It's yeah. pasta, bread, and this and that. And then they're not growing the way they should because they don't have a protein source. Um, and so you get this problem within, you know, every society has their own their own kind of issues. Our, our number for stunting is 7%. In, in India and Africa, it's about 37% of kids are stunted. Wow. Again, this is a huge issue and it, it goes back to, you know, yeah, protein contents, the diet, but also it's our crummy way of measuring protein. We still measure protein the way that we did in the late 1800s. How much nitrogen is in a, is in a food? It has nothing to do with how much nitrogen or how many amino acids we can extract from the food. It doesn't have to do with the quality of the protein. So are all the amino acids there or only some of the amino acids? We just have this definition of protein. So everybody knows that you go to the store. Now it says in this container, there's 20 grams of protein. Yeah, but okay. I, I feel like, um, well. Do you um, want to talk about our definition? Well, <laughs> Face, mother, or soul? Yeah, so so, so years ago, uh, I got, I mean, um, so when I retired from the NFL, I got approached by CrossFit about helping them develop their tech on how to train athletes. And uh, we traveled for nine years to every continent on the planet and taught hundreds of seminars about uh, using CrossFit for performance training based off the model I created and a big piece of that was nutrition. And I used to just get these interesting questions about like, well, you know, um, you know, like uh, uh, is whey protein is valuable and pea protein, and they always went to it. And I kind of broke it down real simple where I'm like, you know, the only only proteins I count are ones with faces, souls and a mother. 
If it's other than that, it's just when I looked at it, they weren't as nutrient dense. And the problem that we found is that people thought that all proteins were created equal. Yeah, it was a big black and, bean movement and, at yeah, the time. And, and I just remember being like, um, the if you look at like the nutrient density and you look at the quality of the protein of like uh, the elk that I shot or the buffalo that we get from say classy uh, it's orders of magnitude better it's so much uh, more like you can taste it it just feels and I uh, just observationally uh, you know people tend to gain muscle faster and tend to do better than a, a diet of you know whey protein shakes and beans you know, and rice and beans and rice absolutely but you also have to go into it as to vegetables exist because they evolved and the only way that they could evolve it was if they protected their dna and the way that they did it was encasing the proteins in the dna in something that animals couldn't digest so that even if you ate whatever it was that the plant had it would go right through you and then end up in a pile of fertilizer and it would be ready to grow the next generation and so so if if a plant was freely giving up its protein basically it wouldn't have survived it wouldn't have evolved and so they evolved away from giving up the key proteins that we were trying to extract from it. So, you know, if you have a ruminant and you can do a bunch of stuff to break down the material, you'll get more nutrients from it. So there's our, there are places and companies now that are trying to figure out ways that we can basically digest and absorb all of the amino acids that are in plants. But for the moment, we know that it's going to be, you're going to need to have a much greater volume hmm protein from plants than you would from from a from an animal source yeah we i mean we saw that with the game changers deal where they had the bodybuilders which i thought was kind of skewed because i mean obviously they're on performance enhancing drugs but if you take a look those guys were eating like six to eight hundred grams of protein from plants a day which right. is just you know astronomical and how they're doing it or at least that's what they were claiming you know you never really see behind the the deal but um doc but before we get rocking um well we're kind of rocking already baby or more rocking intermission give us some background on you man so how did you get into this right is that where we're going john yeah yeah no i was hoping like for a little bit of cv and just a little introduction on who you are and yeah so so i started actually as a strength and conditioning coach for the university of michigan football team so so basically you know i was uh i was an average athlete at everything and not great at anything so that's where you go into studying why i was a you know why i wasn't good enough kind of thing so if you look at most exercise researchers, you got George Brooks, one of the great, one of the greatest exercise researchers ever. He was a national level runner, but he was never an international level runner. And he tried to figure out why. John Halsey, same thing. He was a, a great athlete, but he was not a great athlete to the point where he could be international. So a lot of us start in the same thing. We're frustrated that we can't excel. And then we go first maybe into coaching a little bit, and then we go into trying to figure out what, why our athletes are responding differently. Because you've seen it in the weight rooms around the NFL. I've seen it for years and years now. You put people on the same program, some blow up like balloons, and some stay pretty much the same. And yeah. so that, to me, was a huge question for me as to why. And so I went and did um, graduate school, went to, to Berkeley, then to Go University Bears. of Illinois. Berkeley University Drive. of Illinois. Yeah. And uh, so, so then what we did at University of Illinois is we discovered kind of uh, a protein whose activity correlated with the gain in muscle mass as a result of resistance exercise. So we did the first experiments where we could actually see that when we activated this protein complex called the mechanistic target of rapamycin, the increase in muscle mass we got six weeks of training was exactly, was exactly related to how much activity of this protein we got 
three to six hours after we exercised. So if you exercise harder, or you get a greater volume or you get the signals into that muscle, you go to failure basically. What you see is that activity, that protein goes up and the amount that of that activity protein going up gives you a really good strong predictor as to how much muscle mass you're gonna gain from that program. So, so that was the first, um, first kind of thing that I did for my PhD and then I went and worked at, the, uh, at Washington University in St. Louis with John Halsey who kind of is the father of endurance exercise research. He, in 1967, he basically showed that um, when you do endurance exercise, you increase mitochondria. And that was the first time that anybody actually thought that endurance exercise was good for you. Because until then, they would do chest x-rays of endurance athletes and see a big heart. And then they'd say, oh, he's got heart failure. This endurance exercise is killing him. Um, and so Halsey is was actually an MD and a cardiologist. So he was like, Actually, I think it's probably good and let's, and so he did the first studies that did that. And then when I got there, what I was doing was trying to attach the molecular kind of uh, dots. And so what we discovered was a, a, a protein called, you know, again, it's a molecular biology thing. So it's all alphabet soup. It's called PGC1-alpha, or it's a co-activator protein that's activated by endurance exercise and we know can induce mitochondrial biogenesis. So it's basically... When you exercise, you you increase the amount of that, but you also produce a novel form of it that's shorter and has no ability to be inactivated. And so the result is that you get this huge stimulus from the exercise to increase the number of mitochondria in your muscle. And so so that was those those were those things. And then I started getting into trying to have total control over over muscle because you think you really understand it, but the best way to tell you that you don't understand it is to try and build it outside of the body. So we started to try and engineer muscles outside of the body, kind of what what um, what they're doing down in Florida and um, with some of the kind of extra stuff that they do for DARPA. This was a DARPA-based project. So, so basically, can we make muscles that you can have that are wrapped in a su substance that you can just take off the off the shelf, they're working, and then you could put them in and they could be a motor if you want to drive a spaceship or you could do. And so we were engineering them. They never got big because we couldn't get the vasculature and there were a number of really hard issues, but we got it so that we could make these things. And we also discovered at the time that if you just attach it to a motor and there's beautiful videos of Bob Dennis, the little device that he's got two muscles and a fish and he can make it swim around in a dish because you can just contract one muscle, contract the other muscle, and it would swim. But every time you do those things, the muscle would pull away from the machine because there wasn't an attachment. And so wherever the attachment was, as the muscle contracted, it would always try and pull away from the machine because there was no tendon. And so we started engineering tendons and ligaments as a way to try and understand how those tissues work. And so now if you go down to my laboratory, we've got um, cells from these from people who go up you know, an hour and a half from here is Tahoe. So they go skiing, they rupture their ACL, they come down the hill into our uh, clinic and we get the, the remnants of that ACL and we, oh. we isolate the cells and we can grow human engineered um, ACLs from that. Oh, wow. But, so, so those are things. And then the last thing we've been starting to do is trying to understand the role of diet in this and diet in age, basically. And so we started working, um, we've got a group here where uh, John Ramsey and, and Gino Cordopassi looking at the ketogenic diet and longevity. And so we had a paper a couple of years ago now that showed that on a ketogenic diet, mice live 13% longer 
than a, than a controlled diet or a cow average diet. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of work as to try and understand how that is happening, how you're increasing longevity. The other thing that happens is when you're 26, when you have a 26 month old mouse, normally they have very poor endurance and they have poor strength and they lose muscle mass. On the ketogenic diet, they maintained endurance, they maintained strength, and they maintained their muscle mass. So their health span was improving. And the other thing that was improving was their cognitive function. And so now we've got a grant to try and figure out how the ketogenic diet is improving cognition and maintaining muscle mass, and whether the better muscle is actually causing the changes that occur in the brain. So if you have better quality muscle and more mitochondria in your muscle, we know that you break down a neurotoxin. And so what we're thinking is that if your muscle is, is in really good shape, you've got lots of mitochondria, you get rid of this neurotoxin and your brain doesn't have the signal to deteriorate as quickly. Is, so, it, is that dependent on, uh, on just a high protein or is it just having something to do with the, uh, with the ketones and the body's produ production of ketones? It, so it's, it's not because of the high protein, because in rodents, you actually have to put them onto a lower protein in order to get them ketotic. So in rodents, they make, they only, they can make sugar really well from amino acids. So in order, all of the animal studies then are done at low protein with. So for long-term, long-term space flight, the idea is you, if you have a motor, it's going to break down over time uh -huh. and the motor doesn't fix itself, but a muscle fixes itself. So the idea was that if you had a muscle and you could generate it, you could pump it could generate some flow into the, so you could flow fluid through it and you could drive the equipment. And if something happened to the muscle, it would self re, self renew. Wow. Is it putting out like an electrical current or is it just the, the function of the pumping is causing some form of. The function of the pumping. So it's just like if you ever go and stand at the end of a marathon, everybody stops running at the end of the marathon. If they stop running, they go poof right onto the ground. Yeah. They tell you to keep moving because the the muscle is pumping the blood back up to your heart. Mm -hmm. and if you don't have it, all the blood just goes down. Same thing would happen in these, these engineered muscles is that if you could create enough of a vascular system as they contract and as they're, as they're contracting, the, what's going to happen is you're going to squeeze liquid out of them. And then as it relaxes, it's going to suck liquid in. And so you're going to get flow in that way. So those are, you know, and it's like again. a biological, it's like, it's a living muscle. Yeah. yeah. Where, uh, doc, where's your lab? So my lab is at UC Davis. Now. Oh, you're at UC Davis. So, okay. Yeah. So, so I had been at, uh, I'd been at, uh, university in Dundee. So the university of Dundee in Scotland for five years, but then we moved back to the U S and now we're in, in Davis, California. Well, you kind of have a Canadian accent. So I was going to ask you a little bit about that. Yeah. So I did grow up in Canada. Where at? Uh, one of uh, right near Toronto uh, okay. in Burlington. So, yeah, yeah. So my mom's from Lethbridge, um, okay. south nice. of Calgary. So yeah, yeah. No, I picked it up, and then uh, when you said Berkeley, and I'm like, man, this, you know, I was this guy. I was trying to <laughs> trying to connect everything. Uh, yeah. The one I'm totally like. Uh, um, I was just uh, had my shoulder scoped about eight weeks ago. Um, had a bunch of junk from obviously my previous uh, employment. But uh, they had a 10-year-old kid in there who was, the day after I went in, they were doing the post-op and kind of put me in PT. They uh, had a 10-year-old kid come in who had just torn his ACL. 
yeah. they went in and they actually used a, a section of his IT band on that leg to, for the ACL. And I was like, there has to be something better in a graph. Because I'm, you know, I mean, as we start to understand fascia a little bit more, we know that it connects to the nervous system. And I was like, what about all the other graphs? They're like, well, we couldn't cut up and take a middle third of the patellar tendon. And we couldn't do, uh, you know, hamstring. And they went through all this and it was our last option. And I was yeah. like, man, I, and I even said to him, I'm surprised that somebody hasn't been able to grow this tissue outside the body from your own tissue and then be able to implant it. And they were like, no, that doesn't exist. Yeah, and so, then you tell- <laughs> yeah. so we can, so I have a colleague um, who's more clinically oriented with it, where she, she's trying to engineer them as tissues that you would implant into people. Um, we actually put in a proposal to the NFL um, years ago now when, when there was a, all the focus was on concussion to their medical granting committee that would say, what we're going to do is we're going to isolate stem cells from everybody who comes into the NFL. We're going to freeze them down at a certain point. And if they have an ACL rupture, we'll, we'll also take MRIs when they come in. You do that anyways for the, at the combine to see what the quality of the knee is. So then what we could do is we could basically, there's, you know, there's somebody who has a rupture. We get a call. We then thaw the cells. We put them in and within two or three weeks, we would have, a ligament that would be shaped exactly like the ligament we got up from the MRI that we could then implant in place and accelerate recovery. Um, they didn't go for it because again, the focus was somewhere else, but you know, that was, that was one of the things that we had anticipated. We can grow them three and a half centimeters long, which is the length of a human ACL. But we now use them more as uh, an assay to a bioassay to see you know, whether some of these things are, are real. So if you go online and people say, oh, if you have tendinopathy, you can get BPC-157, you inject it in, it gets rid of your tendinopathy. So we can go in, we can buy it, we can bring it into lab and show that it doesn't do anything. You put it in with the, in the ligament and it doesn't change the ligament's function or, or anything about the ligament at all. Uh, so Doc, we I've, can... Uh, I've like, I've... <laughs> Uh, I just had this conversation yesterday because uh, after my surgery, I've developed some capsulitis in the posterior capsule yeah. and it's uh, presenting like a frozen shoulder. And they were like, you know, uh, as a, you know, have you tried, I have dumped an, uh, a high amount of BPC 157 directly into the capsule for every day for about the last eight weeks to no change. Yeah. So, 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 so I could have saved you a little money. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Well, but um, it, uh, you, you know, so like something like that, like, uh, and then I've, dug into this whole, uh, I just read a research article that was came out about six months ago where they were using relactin two, uh, in, um, uh, with a frozen shoulder, uh, to try to, you know, relax it. And then I looked at like saline solution and they were using dexamethasone mixed in and, you know, all these different treatments to, right. to try so, to treat it. So what Rob, Rod Whitley will tell you, and he's, uh, he's probably one of the best physical therapists in the world. He's a guy out at, uh, Aspartar in Qatar. And so what he'll tell you is that all of these things, they're only in existence for one reason, and that's to make money for the doctor. They actually have no validity as far as medical outcomes. So what you see is that the one thing that works extraordinarily well is loading. But the problem is people are not, they don't understand necessarily how to load those tissues. And that's where we've been focusing for the last year or two years on the musculoskeletal system, we've been looking at how to treat tendinopathy, how to treat you know, other structures that are connective tissue structures. Because the biggest thing that we see when we go back to this idea of sarcopenia is that muscle mass goes down with age, but strength goes down three times faster than muscle mass goes down. 
And so if muscle mass is going down, but strength is going down three times more, that means that our textbook definition of strength is proportional to muscle mass can't be true. And it's not because of neural changes, because these are in people who are too young to have had neural adaptations. What it is, is changes in the connective tissue are altering how we transmit the force from the motors to the tendons. And so what we've been focusing on is trying to understand how, how does connective tissue work? How does the collagen within the muscle play a role in strength? And these are really things that haven't been looked at for years and years and years. Like there's studies from a guy named Laurent um, in the 70s that show that when you do extra loading, you increase collagen synthesis something like a hundredfold. And when we actually do these models in animals where we grow muscle at a super incredibly fast rate, the amount of collagen within the muscle actually goes up faster than the amount of protein within the muscle, myofibrillar protein within the muscle. So these, the connective tissue is essential, but what you get is you get people who have always trained for their muscle or their cardiovascular system. And how you train for your connective tissue is different than how you train for your muscle and your heart. And so, so that's a really important thing for when you're dealing with an injury, when you're dealing with um, any type of connective tissue problem, whether it's bone, cartilage, or tendon or ligament. Doc, can you get into that a little deeper um, on like the, you know, I mean, we understand the probably conventional model of, um, you know, mechanical loading to build muscle, but can you get into a little bit more on uh, and, and, the tendons and ligaments and how to, you know, connective tissues? And Doc, you mentioned stiffness earlier. This is a very familiar term in the strength and conditioning community. So I feel that may play into John's question as well. Yeah. So there's two things that are really important here. One is that stiffness and performance go hand in hand. The stiffer you are, the faster you can transmit force from the muscle contraction to the movement. And that means you can perform at a high, you've got better power. What we all know from watching athletes and following and, and training and coaching them is that you have an athlete who's performing at their absolute best, their power is the best possible. What you're immediately thinking is, this guy's gonna get injured. He's going to pull a muscle. He's going to do something. And you see it all the time at the Olympics, especially 200, 400 meters in the men's side. You've optimized speed. So you've optimized performance. And that's increased stiffness in the structures. So now your, your tendon is stiffer than your muscle is strong. You go and you take a big, long step because you start to fatigue a little bit. You overstep and bang, you hit the ground. And now instead of the tendon stretching to shock absorb, now what's happening is you're going to the muscle has to stretch while it's contracting. That's where you get into these problems of, of ruptures, muscle pulls, muscle ruptures. So, so that's a key component of the stiffness. So we train a lot. Strength and conditioning coaches train to increase stiffness. And so that's max power work. That's doing things like that. But we also, and you know, the classic is the NCAA where you train with your strength coach in max power. You train to increase your, your, street, your speed, your strength, and your power. You get injured, you go to the athletic trainer, the athletic trainer trains you in an entirely different way to get you healthy. They get you back to health, they put you back with a strength and conditioning coach and you keep going through the cycle. And so what we know about connective tissue and how you train it, this has been shown in bones, in, in tent. We've, we've done the ligament work here where we 
in our engineered ligaments, the nice thing we can do is we can build little machines that can exercise them. And so it's it's almost like you can exercise or you can have the, the tendons or ligaments behave like they're running 24 hours a day if you want. Or you can do it for five minutes and you can control the whole environment. And what we found is that if you just go for 10 minutes, that's maximally activating the signals that are going to increase the strength and robustness of the, of the ligament. It then takes you, by, if you can keep going, what happens is the signals that you need in the cells, they start going away. They start turning off everything. So it doesn't matter if you've gone for 10 minutes or six hours, your tendons, ligaments, and connective tissue, cartilage and bone, they've only had a stimulus for that first 10 minutes. And then there's all turning off. It's the easiest way to explain it is like, um, it's, it's your nose is also works exactly this way because your nose is designed to sense change. And so, you know, I'll, I'll do this one for your, for your listeners. The, there's two examples. I'll give you the cruder one. So, so basically, if you walk in, you're in a tall hotel, you get into the elevator and you're like, oh, man, that stinks. Somebody left me a present here. And it's just horrible. You go down three or four floors, you can't smell anything anymore. The doors open up, the next people come on and they think you're a crude beast because you've let this huge, but they can smell it. The smell is still there, but you can't smell it. And the reason is those cells turn off to that smell because they're waiting for the next smell that they have to respond to. It's called becoming refractory. The other way of thinking of it is that when my daughter was really young, she liked to flush the toilet because that was exciting. Oh, look at all this activity. You, you can control very little when you're young. And then she would try and flush it again, but it oh, wouldn't do anything. Yeah, the water hadn't filled up. Exactly. So you have to, the refractory period is how long does it take to fill up the tank so that you can flush it again? And so for connective tissues, like bone, tendon, and ligament, and cartilage, it's only taking between 10 minutes and less to empty it, to, to, to basically flush the toilet. And what we found, and other people have found in bone, is that it takes to fill the tank again, it takes about six to eight hours. So what you, if, you're, if you've got an injury, or if you're trying to rehab a connective tissue problem, like a bone, a, a cartilage, or, or tendon, or ligament, if you do five to 10 minutes of activity first thing in the morning, you go six hours, you rest, you do five to 10 minutes of activity, six hours of rest, five to 10 minutes of activity, you actually decrease the time it takes you to recover from the injury. Because now that's optimized training for your connective tissues. They respond to that short bout, that's the minimum effective dose is the five to 10 minutes, and then it takes about six to eight hours to go. And then once you've gotten to the point where now you're gonna do other parts of your training, one of the training bouts becomes bigger, that then becomes your aerobic session or whatever you're doing, and then you, you keep one of the other two training sessions as your protective session. So for somebody who's got a shoulder issue, what you have to do is you have to put load through it for five to 10 minutes. Now, the important thing is musculoskeletal system is under three different loads, tension, compression, and shear. All three of them are essential, but depending on which load you put through your cells, if you put them under tension, they'll become more like a tendon ligament or, or fascia. If you put them under compression, they'll become the same exact cells will become more like cartilage cells. And if you put them under shear, they're going to become more like the cells you would see going around the pulleys that you have in your wrists or all of these different connective tissues. And what it means is it actually changes how the cells behave. 
You take the exact same cell, you put it under shear forces, and it becomes a cell that is, has a lubricated layer that prevents it from sticking to anything else so that you can slide things. What happens when we get something like a frozen shoulder? We're not getting the movement. We're not getting the shear force across what we need, where we need the shear. And the result is that you don't get those, you don't get those lubricating proteins made at the surface and it no longer slides naturally. So what do you do? You go in, you do something like ART where you hold one system, you move it, you abruptly move the other one. And now it gets a little bit of that shear force. And then what you have to do is you have to wait six hours and give it another five minutes of that shear force. Wait six hours, give it another five minutes. And what that's going to do is that's going to get you to the point where now you've got that protein that you need expressed at that interface so that those tissues can slide again. That's why when you go to ART or you get something done, yeah, oh, you walk out, oh, that feels great. First of all, they took their their elbow out of your out of your whatever, and it feels a hell of a lot better because they're not pushing on you with all that weight. I go two so days that, a week for myofascial release, and it's uh, 30 minutes of utter excruciating, like I want to throw up in my mouth. Exactly. So you feel like, oh, this is great. This worked great. But it's mostly because they stopped pushing on you or standing on you or whatever. But what they did is they got a little bit of a stimulus. But that's only one stimulus. You need to then repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And if you can get it at least twice a day with eight hours in between, just doing it yourself where you can hold something and allow those things to slide, now you're going to get that signal to a much greater degree. You're going to get those proteins that allow the lubrication to come back. When you've got a damaged tendon, you need to put it under tension. When we have a damaged tendon, it doesn't normally allow the injured area to get under tension. Because if it did, it would start a tear that would tear the whole thing. And so we go do what's called stress shielding. The stress goes around the injury. And so what you have to do is you have to use a different type of loading in order to get tension through the injured part. And we use what's called stress relaxation loading, where you pull and you hold. So you use an isometric. Yeah, like you build up to, yeah. So yeah. you build up a 30 second isometric hold because what you're doing is you're getting that stress relaxation. The tendon is getting less stiff. And as it gets less stiff, more load gets put through the injured area. And so we published a paper last year where we where we basically filled in the hole of a, somebody's patellar tendon, a, a professional basketball player who's had a hole in his patellar tendon. You can see the hole nicely on an MRI. And then we put him on this isometric training program about stress relaxation. We did a little bit of nutrition to support. And then what you see is over time, that hole goes completely away. Wow. We've done it with one guy who's a discus thrower in New Zealand who had a hole in both of his patellar tendons. He got um, ultrasound, saw the hole, did the training. Seven weeks later, holes are gone. I just had an interesting observation, John, before you get into this next point, um, that there's all of these, like, you can almost magically grow this muscle with this research and science, but McQuilkin can't put any muscle on his biceps. There's something in there. It fell apart. You're right. Callie, cut that out. <laughs> well, he, he doesn't understand loading. Ah, that's right. You know, and the problem is he's, he's under the law of accommodation, just 12 <laughs> ounces from the table to his mouth. I mean, he's accommodated to all those beers. Oh, no, I thought you were talking about bags of Skittles. <laughs> John, I'm on a linear progression program, 12, 13. Well, your hands are so tiny, you can't grab two of them at the same time. Oh, hand burn. So you'd have to like almost put like a weighted, uh, like cozy 
with Koozie. weights in the yeah, like down in the bottom, so you can continue to load in that progression. So back to the valuable. Yes. Sorry, burn bands. Yeah, on. yeah, sorry, burn bands on. Uh, so doc, you, it sounds like there's this patellar tendon protocol. No. One thing that well, John asked was uh, no. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, I ruptured my patellar tendon in '99, and yeah. uh, um, I had had a really bad tendonitis for years. And they got this great idea where they had iontophoresis, where they were taking uh, dexamethasone patches and then using the current to run in there. Oh, and he's rubbing his eyes. He's Dude, like, oh. uh, they did it every day for about six uh, for about sixty days. I did sixty treatments, and then uh, all of a sudden, um, I go in the NFL in my first career game. My tendon just explodes. Uh, yeah. I, I was playing in Veteran Stadium. I stepped back. My foot kind of caught in a seam on the turf. I yep. got loaded and it sounded like somebody shot me. And then I went into surgery and the doc's like, you had like a tendon of like a 90 year old man. Like what happened? Yeah. And then as yeah, I so, did the research on that, they were like, you're only supposed to do it like five times. And, yeah, yeah. It was partially the treatment. It's partially, um, it's partially the loading programs that you do because as a, as a football player, especially a, a performance-driven football player, what you're doing is you're loading very dynamically. You're trying to move it as fast as you can. Always. And the, the problem is that as you do that, uh, you're stress shielding completely. And where a patellar tendon usually has a chronic problem is right up at the bottom of the patella. Because basically, it's this bone that comes in and it's got to narrow really quickly. And as you pull on any tendon, it is what we call isovolumetric which means that as you pull on it, it has to squeeze. As I pull on it, it's got to get thinner. And if I do that, what's going to happen is if I've got a little bit of damage in my patellar tendon and I'm not letting the load through that, so I'm stress shielding it, the stress is going around it like a rock in a river, but then as the tendon is getting longer, what's happening is the strong bit has got to come in and it compresses the center. And you get, as we said, with compression, you get cartilage gene expression. So you actually then bring water in and you bring all this cartilage. It's not strong anymore. So there was one NBA player who had chronic patellar tendon problems. And when, and a lot of people say, oh, you treat the donut, not the hole, which means that there's a hole in the patella tendon. We, we can't fix it, but we're going to treat the outside because there's still healthy tissue. Basically, the doc told me that the central core of that patellar tendon was black and the outer ring was green because it had died. There was nothing left of functional tissue there. And so with your patellar tendon, you had all of the problem of the, compre the compressive load that you're getting by moving as quickly as you can and not doing anything protective. And then you put on top of that treatments that are, again, there's absolutely no valid evidence. So PRP is another one. There is randomized clinical trials now that show that if the doctor is blinded and the patients are blinded, there is no valid effect of PRP on a patellar tendon, on anterior knee pain. It's, it's, very, it's very clear. It's to the point now where at Isokinetic this past year, where it's the FIFA's based, uh, is the FIFA medical conference, they basically said that in a lot of Scandinavian countries, there's no evidence that surgery is good. So they're, even with the 10-year-old who ruptured his ACL, they wouldn't repair it because there's no, there's no need and there's no benefit to repairing the ACL in most of the population. You can compensate with stronger muscles anterior and posterior. So there's at least two players on the Dutch national under 19 or under 23 football team 
who have no ACL. They're just because they don't repair them anymore because the surgery is as much of a, an yeah. injury as the actual injury itself. So, so things are starting to change, but right now you still get most docs saying, oh, you got a problem there. I'm gonna inject you with this because it's this idea that if we just are doing loading, that that's somehow not scientific. And that if I wanna get real results, I either need to take a drug, I need to get an injection or I need surgery. And oh. none of those things are valid. Sure. The only valid thing is the load. Well, I mean, unless there's like a mechanical blockage, like I know on my shoulder, I had a osteophyte and I had um, like right. a bone chip that was limiting range of motion. Totally and I, fine. And then I think what happened was uh, because of the limited range of motion from the mechanical block, all of a sudden I, I started losing range of motion. And yep. uh, it was almost as if like the back of the capsule, because I was limited, ended up kind of freezing up and just getting really thick. Yeah, and so that, that happens. And so if you get these things that are growing off the bones yeah, or bone spurs or whatever you want to, you can go in and as delicately as you can, clip it out and try and get rid of it and try and get out as quickly as you can. And then what you do is right when the person's waking up, you start loading. And that's the other thing that orthopedics don't want to do is they don't want to load the tissue. And the biggest problem that happens is that if you keep it inactive. There's a beautiful study by, uh, by Monica Baer um, out of Copenhagen that's in the journal of, uh, that's in JAMA, so it's the American Medical Association, that showed that it, they took people who had muscle injuries, musculoskeletal injuries, and they either loaded them two days after the injury, or they waited an extra week and loaded them nine days after injury. What they found is that if they loaded them at day two, they got back 25% faster than if they loaded them at day nine. So would you say like a combination of like a mouthfast release ART and then uh, something like PNF and then what would be the other one? I mean, you said, so shear, uh, so, compression, so, compression. So what would be the compression? So we don't want to get compression into a, in a, into a tendon or a ligament. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's one of the ways that you get compression is the plyometric movement, the really quick movements. That's when you're getting that compressive force is the primary force. So we're just finishing a study now where we, where we did a, where we put a hole into the middle of a rat's patellar tendon. And then 15 days later, when they had a nice scar there, we went in, we loaded it one time. And all we did was we did uh, it's either three or four isometric contractions of 30 seconds, or we did the exact same amount of time where they're contracting the muscle as really quick dynamic contractions. And what you see is when we do the isometric contractions, the markers for tendon, so the, all of the genetic uh, markers that say these cells are tendon cells went way up with the isometrics. They didn't change at all with the dynamics. And we actually saw an increase in collagen two, which is again, it's a cartilage gene in the dynamic movements. So that's what we're trying to avoid for tendons, ligaments and fascia. We don't want the compressive force. We want some shear where you have to go under pulleys but we really predominantly want tension. And that's where we, we're using a lot more isometric and really in a strength training way. What I'm trying to get strength coaches to understand is that for years and years, for as far back as it goes, most strength coaches think that they program volume and load. And really what a strength coach programs is velocity. As you increase the load, the velocity goes down. And that's a protective movement for the musculoskeletal system. 
as you decrease the load, velocity goes up, and that's a performance-based movement that's going to increase performance, but it's going to put you at a greater risk for injury down the line. And so if you have a really good understanding of the fact that your velocity of movement is really a, a, it's central to how your tissues are going to adapt, that allows you to then really address some of the key issues of keeping a somebody healthy and having them perform at a high level. So it's pretty interesting because it, the patellar tendonitis, there, there's pain associated with that, right? Like yeah. And, the, um, and uh, doc, my patella tendon ruptured mid patella and actually tore the retinaculum. Okay. So uh, when they stitched it back, I know the doc like cut out whatever it was and cleaned it all up and was like, you know, probably the best thing ever happened to you was rupturing this thing because now it's going to be, we're going to stitch it back and the, the healing process is going to be such that, you know, and then I, I came back and started 16 games the next year and have never had any issues with patellar tendonitis. Yeah. So, and the only issue is that you the stiffness of that tissue would have been really, really high um, because what they would have done is they would have sutured it really, really strongly, especially the orthos really like to get in there and use reinforcements and other things. And what you really, um, what you really want is you um, really want them to actually put in something that's resorbable. Because if there's nice studies that if I suture a tendon together, what happens is that the tissue in between it actually dies. So what they, what they're doing in, in a lot of the elite orthopedics is they're, really suturing it up super, super tight. And so basically what happens is that if there's any tissue in between, it actually, it's not the tissue that's there, it's actually the, 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 the suture or the material that they've added in. And so that's, that's a possible, um, and you wouldn't necessarily see that until much later. Does the pain, so pain associated with some of the compression, let's say if it's, uh, you know, cause let's say the nervous system is guarding for whatever reason, some sort of limitation in a joint. Does that affect this process or do you just got to work through it? Is there um, another mechanism so to consider? Absolutely. So there's really nice work by a woman named Ebony Rio out of Australia. And what they do is they use, they use an external stimulator on your brain that stimulates your cortex and then they measure muscle contraction. So how much electrical activity do you need to get a motor, uh, a motor pro, um, how much do you need to stimulate the cortex to get a response in the motor system? And what she sees in people who are normal is as she increases intensity, she gets this nice sigmoidal curve where you get this, as you increase the intensity of the signal that she gives to the brain, you get a stronger and stronger contraction. In somebody with patellar tendon pain, it goes from zero to 100%. There's no fine tuning of the system. It's called cortical inhibition. It's it, when you got out of your patellar tendon brace, you probably tried to contract your quadricep muscle and it wouldn't do it. No, it took me probably, I mean, three months to be able to fire yeah. my quad. Yeah. And so that's cortical inhibition. Your brain is now not letting your body contract the muscle because it's trying to protect the tissue of injury. Specifically, these are, you know, you've got things called muscle spindles and Golgi tendon organs that are giving reflex feedback that regulates how much the muscle contracts. But you've also got the brain stops actually firing the muscle as hard. And so that's why some of the, um, some of the, some of the problems with elite performers with a patellar tendon is they, their performance goes down. Even though they're trying super hard, their brain actually is overriding 
and it's not letting them fire those muscles. And so there's ways that, that Ebony is do, using for training because there's nice studies that, that show that if you, if you strength train with an external stimulus like a, a metronome and you're watching the metronome and you're training to the metronome, you actually increase the cortical excitability more than if you're just training to self-paced um, training. So if you do have somebody who's got pain associated with a, a tendon, what we then do is we would then use some isometrics, but then we would also use these types of um, basically externally guided strength training because the externally guided strength training actually increases our brain's uh, excitability so that we can actually we can actually hit that muscle harder. You know, uh, what was really pivotal for me was, um, because I couldn't get my quad to fire was, uh, I ended up through some different channels through a guy named Mauro de Pasquale, got hooked up with Charlie Francis who recommended, um, uh, East, um, EMS. And I started using, uh, an EMS machine to recruit more motor units. And it was yep. almost as if the EMS device like re-educated my body on how to fire and how to get max motor unit recruitment. And from the, yeah. like, from the day I started using that, it was about three months all of a sudden, like I couldn't fire my quad, I couldn't do anything. And then three months later, all of a sudden, everything just seemed to rewire and come back and ended up coming back and starting a whole bunch of games that next year. And ironically, the doc, I remember uh, when I came out of surgery, told me that they'd never seen an athlete come back from this injury and pretty much my career was over. Yeah. And so I remember yeah. seeing him a year later and just being like, F you, you know? <clears throat> yeah. At the same time, that was probably in your mind as you were doing your rehab. So, so yeah, that no, was, I mean, I, I probably was a driving force. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, trying to prove people wrong my entire life. It's, uh, yeah. man, this, um, this, it, it's really interesting. I mean, I've, I've always been a, a very fast responder to everything. And mm -hmm. this, uh, this frozen kind of uh, thickening of the rear posterior capsule is really complexing. Because yeah. it's uh, it, it's like it's it's like a neurological inhibition where like the body is guarding for a reason that I don't know because uh, you know like a bad X-rays and it's all cleaned up and there's really no dysfunction yeah, from a mechanical stand standpoint. Yeah, it's it's not that the body is guarding, but it's the body's misinterpreting. And so what's happening is it's what's called neuropathic pain. So the idea is is that there's some other signal that's not a pain signal that your body is associating with pain so your brain won't let you override it. So it's a classical conditioning type of thing. And so what you have to do is you have to use some of these techniques to get outside of, to get outside of, you know, the internalization of it. So, so we, we see this in athletes right now quite a bit because basically you've got a 20 year old athlete who gets a niggle, just a little something, and they're worried about, oh my God, my career, my family's well-being, all of these things are in jeopardy because I feel this pain here. And so now their brain starts taking over and saying, okay, we can't do anything. We have to shut everything down. And so you get this pain that's prolonged, even though, as you say, there's nothing that looks like there's any damage there. And there's that pain and, and the limitation that goes on long after the actual pain is gone. And so it's a, almost a post-traumatic stress for, for many people is that that was such a, oh my God, that was such a horrible event that if they feel any little tiny bit close to what they used to feel, then it's like the whole system shuts down. But it's not and even then, if they feel it, it's if their brain interprets, right? And, and what's crazy is I've had way worse injuries. 
So like, I don't know why all of a sudden it decided to congregate in this one and move in right. this way. It's, it's really, it's really fascinating to me. I mean, yeah. in a, and so like a tragic way. Yeah. So, so basically what you want to do, and again, this will be just, just for you, but anybody else who's going through a similar thing, the idea again is you have to get that sliding to happen. You have to get that sliding to happen at least twice a day. So the next time you're in with your, your ART person, just have them show you how to do a self-manipulation where you're saying, okay, I'm going to hold it. I'm going to get the movement and I'm going to get the sliding of these tissues past each other so that you can do it at the end of the day. And then you can come back the next day and do it first thing in the morning, end of the day, and you can do it more frequently because basically what you need is you need the mobility in order to prevent because basically what you've got right now is you got two tissues that sit like this all the time. What twice a week they do this, but that's not enough. So what happens is basically it's like tearing off a bandaid twice a week. But then yeah. as soon as you've got, you've got all these raw spaces that are really quick to read here. Yeah, no, so you're I, not actually getting any of the, what you need, which is this, the sliding constantly to get the lubricant which is the protein that's going to coat that and it's going to allow that sliding to happen. Yeah, I've, I've gone to PT almost every single day and then I do stuff uh, in the gym. So I'm trying to hit it twice a day at, at minimum, yeah. um, you know, and I'll do like lacrosse balls and I do a bunch of distraction with the bands and, um, you know, uh, you know, all yeah. the different rotations and this and this. And um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll ask him a little bit more on that. Um, I'd like to go in reverse a little bit. Uh, did we finish discussing about the plants? Uh, I thought the plant-based protein was super interesting. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know if, if you got done curb stomping that one, but I thought that was a really interesting one. And uh, and I know with your research, you've probably looked at like muscle growth and muscle quality and strength and all these key factors related to different protein sources. And it's something we encounter constantly from people that are more on the vegan side that are like, well, you know, the proteins are proteins. It's just the same. And uh, I always go back to it in that like there's two things that I've observed in my years of lifting weights is there's a, a definite difference in appearance of muscle of people that lift heavier weights over 85% and those that don't. And also mm -hmm. from those of people that actually eat a animal based higher protein diet of, you know, red meat versus something that looks like not like that. Right. So, so the best studies here are that even just that meat is not meat. That's a, we'll start there because Luke Van Loon has run these beautiful studies where he basically feeds stable isotope or injects stable isotope into a cow. And then he can follow, then he takes the milk for as long as the cow is get, having milk and he can follow that milk through the body and see how much has ended up in the muscle. And then after the cow has no more milk or the milk is no longer labeled, then what he can do is he can, he can butcher the cow and, and have them eat meat. And so he does these really cool studies where he can say, all right, we had you eat a steak or we took the exact same thing and we made it into ground beef. And if we made it into ground beef, you made more muscle from the ground beef than you did from the steak. And he basically says that this is, again, he spent, he says that he spent uh, 30 million euros to prove that his mom was right. So basically <laughs> this is one of those things where he said, my mom always said to chew my food. And if, because when you break down the food more, either by chewing or by using ground meat instead of whole meat, instead of a steak, what you do is your body can digest and absorb it better in the ground form, or if you've chewed it up more. So just to say that protein is protein, even within a same animal, if you can pre-grind it, you're actually going to build more muscle. And it's just because 
when it's broken down more, you can digest and absorb it easier. Well, there's enzymes in the mouth uh, where digestion starts that if you don't chew the food and actually, you know, uh, with the saliva and the enzymes, it doesn't, uh, it's not going to be absorbed once it gets to the stomach in a similar way. It's just going to, yeah, it's going to take it longer and you're not going to absorb the same amount and it's going to be a very different dynamic. So, so <laughs> I mean, the, the, the irony of this is uh, when we were growing up, my mom's uh, traditional meal was uh, uh, hamburger patties with uh, scoops of white rice. And we had a guy on the podcast who is, you know, t- has a guy named Stan Efferding has something called the vertical diet. And he's over there talking about the magic of his diet is this ground beef and rice thing. And I was like, oh, you stole my mom's cookbook. Yeah. We used to have, uh, you know, like a, a beef patties, you know, uh, hamburger patties with uh, scoops of rice. And he didn't think it was as funny as I did. But I'm like, uh, that was my mom's. That's what we ate the majority growing up. So am I hearing yeah. that when we go to a steakhouse, we got to get the burgers? No. We just got to chew our food. You nah, fucking. Because you, like <laughs> you, you eat like a dog. Yeah, I'm uh, Actually, dogs tend to chew. It's more like a duck. <laughs> Classic Simpsons line. Well, then can you request from a steakhouse for them to chew, like pre-chew pre-pre- my steak? <laughs> it sounds awful. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's just not there. But You don't think so? But it, <laughs> so I'm going for it. So when you go into saying that a protein's a protein, we, we, for our bodies, that's not true. Um, and we digest and absorb proteins differently, even from the same animal, the same exact steak as how it's processed matters. So then when you go from a steak that has all of the essential amino acids to different protein sources that are plant-based that have fewer essentials, and most importantly, they have less leucine, which is the signal that's going to turn our muscles on to, to synthesize protein. So you can build complex proteins. You can build complete proteins from from plants like beans and rice, and you can absorb and and digest proteins. It's just that, again, to say that it's 20 grams of plant-based protein or 20 grams of meat-based protein, that's not exactly the same in our bodies. And we're actually doing a study right now where we're taking a beef burger, a pork burger, a Beyond burger, and a tofu burger, And we're doing molecular analysis of every single molecule, every single carbohydrate, every single protein that's in them before they cook them, after they cook them. And then we're going to feed them to people and we're going to take their blood and we're going to see how many amino acids come in. What's the metabolic change that happens in the blood? And then we're going to take that blood and we're going to put it on the muscle cells and we're going to see which ones make the muscle cells make more protein. And what what are we anticipating here, Doc? So we're anticipating because we're starting with a nice and nitrogenous amount of protein. So same amount of protein. Um, we're, we're anticipating that the animal-based sources are going to have more leucine-rich food in there because Stu Phillips has already shown that. If you do whey protein versus soy protein, the soy protein doesn't give up as much leucine. It doesn't give as, as many other amino acids. That's why you have to have so much higher soy if you're going to try and get the same amount. The beyond protein, which is a pea-based protein, nobody's really ever analyzed how quickly we digest and absorb pea, but we don't necessarily think that it's going to uh, produce the same changes in the blood that we anticipate would get with the animals. And the same would be true for the tofu burger. So that's just going to be really interesting, though, because then we can say, okay, what is it about the different foods that had a positive metabolic effect on our bodies? that changed protein synthesis within our muscles, that had all of these effects. And then what we're looking to do is say, okay, can we change how we digest and absorb protein so that we can actually get more of the plant-based protein out 
So are there ways that we can do that? And we're working with a company now that that's trying to extract all of the protein from plant-based sources so that you could eat, even go in and eat things that we wouldn't normally think of as the food-based part of the pro, the plant. So the stock of, the, of a corn, for example, or sunflower seeds after they've had all the oil extracted. A sunflower seed after it's had all the extra oil extracted is almost 40% protein, but we don't digest and absorb it very well. So can we then use some cool techniques so that we can break down those things only in the stomach and cause it so that we can digest and absorb that protein equivalent to what we'd see with, with an animal-based protein. Because the reality is that yes, animal-based right now are, are definitely the gold standard. But as we go towards 8 billion people, there's just there are issues that are going to be supplying that protein level, especially into a country with 1.5 billion people who, are, who don't eat red meat or largely don't eat red meat or have vegetarian diets just because of the traditions, the religion, all of those things. And 37% of them are stunted because of these, these behaviors. Can we then increase the well-being of a, of a greater number of people if by being able to extract more of that protein? Have, have we tested lab-built meat? So like no animals, but it's built the meat. Does our bodies know the difference between each burger? Nobody's done that simply because the first burger that Mark Post did, it was uh, it was uh, about half a million dollars for that burger. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't any environmental great thing because he used probably 6,000 plastic plates to do it. So, so we've got another project that's, that's working to see whether we can grow cultured meat is what we call it now. There's a number of different companies like Memphis Meats and other and Finless Fish and all these companies around the world that are trying to do this. We would anticipate that the protein sources are going to be much more similar to an animal source, but nobody's done the test yet because we're just not producing the meat at a high enough volume to to do it for, you know, for scientific purpose. What's the raw uh, like? Like, what are the building blocks? Yeah, so so that's the biggest question. So right now, um, finless fish starts with a starts with um, cells that are isolated from fish that are then grown and then differentiated into muscle and fat. Um, Memphis Meats does it from, from a beef-based product uh, and, and they have a chicken product as well. So there's a number of different products in the industry. Um, I'm at Davis, which is probably the best ag school in the world. We have a guy here who cloned the first cow. Um, and so he's got the, the stem cells, the embryonic stem cells from cows. So that's what we're using as a starting material because those are those can proliferate for 50, 60 cycles. What we're trying to do is grow them up into, ideally, in the end, if we're, if this is going to be viable, you're going to have a tank of 25,000 liters of media that has these cells in it, and then you're going to play with the media in such a way as to change those cells into muscle cells and fat cells, and then you're going to condense this thing into something that would be similar meat-like, we'll say. Hmm. Is there a way to, let's say, genetically modify a cow to triple the amount of ribs it has? So we can get like a super ribeye cow. I think KFC did that with like chickens. A, you know, like a stretch limo, but you get like a stretch cow. 
Are you just trying to drive down more beef tomahawks. rib prices? Uh, yeah, the beef rib prices are astronomical here in Texas. Uh, we need to get those suckers down at least 80%. I was going to ask you a little bit about the stem cell stuff because I remember, geez, Which, five, Are we going to get an answer on that or um, I'm are sure, we going to assume no? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with uh, that's a no, Scott. Uh, the... Uh, I remember about five or six, seven years ago reading about uh, stem cells, and it was like going to be the panacea that, uh, you know, they were going to be able to inject stem cells and just instantly become chondrocytes and fix this. And, you know, if you got a bad valve, a hole in your heart, they can put stem cells here. And there was this idea that they were this, I guess, like magical hand of God to fix everything. Um, the research has been pretty underwhelming on that. And uh, it, and I, I always wondered if it was, you know, the uh, absence of exomes or, or you know, culturing them um, outside the body opposed from, you know, some of the stuff they're doing uh, overseas. I just, uh, um, the research that you guys were doing, especially with the stem cells, have you found that to be the case or are we missing a, a key component? So it's, it's not necessarily, so, so there's a number of different issues with stem cells. So our colleagues at the vet school here, when they inject a stem cell, solution like you would do in a in an if you were to do PRP or if you were to do uh, a adipose derived stem cell injection basically you take out fat you put it into a machine it isolates a uh, a fat a, a fat cell body and it and then you inject it in at the same surgical time so you're not doing any culturing if you inject those cells in and you look to see where they go so these guys radio labeled them put them into into animals within 24 hours, they were throughout the body. So the first problem is, if I'm going to put that into your leg, the first time you take a step, all of the cells are going to get squished out of the tissue and they're going to just circulate. So, so that's, a, that's one problem. The second problem is, again, when you, right now, the way that people grow stem cells is they take them out, they put them onto a feeder cell population that are usually a mouse-based cell. And that's another way that you can make them proliferate. So there has to be a new way to do that because you can't, actually put those back into a person because they they're now tainted in, in the way that they've touched um, a, a mouse-based cell so there's all kinds of problems and some of them are that if you get the stem cell the idea of a stem cell is really going to proliferate a lot it's going to have this huge potential well everybody who thinks of that is oh yeah that's great you will regenerate tissues but then you think for a little bit longer and you think oh the other cell type that does that that proliferates in an uncontrolled way is a cancer cell and so many of the cell types that are induced pluripotent stem cells or other stem cells have this teratogenic effect whereas they can unless you can turn off the stem likeness they have the capacity to drive cancers so there's a whole bunch of issues that surround it it makes it incredibly complex. And for most of what we do, and what we see is that if you, instead of trying to inject or, or take them from this place and put them there, if instead you can harness the stem cells that exist within the body, you can just give them the ability to actually activate the way that they would normally activate, you actually get the benefit of the stem cell component. And so, so, so that's where using things like diet and loading are, are ways that you can actually activate stem cells. We know that if there's work from uh, Mark Tarnopolsky that shows that if you exercise a lot, the stem cells in your skin are younger than if you don't exercise. So, so yeah, your skin looks better if, you're, if you've got a lifelong exercise because the stem cells are more rejuvenative. 
So there's different things that we can do to modulate the stem cells that we have that doesn't necessarily involve exogenous delivery of stem cells. Well, I know people are using um, like embryonic and, um, uh, you know, uh, I guess uh, stem cells from what, uh, like the, uh, uh, the umbilical cord and the embryonic fluid and, uh, you know, that type of deal. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know if uh, those stem cells that are coming in that environment are different than obviously the ones collected and harvested from the body. Uh, no, because we've, we've, we can actually make ligaments from all of them. We've taken um, umbilical stem cells uh, from horses and sheep. We've taken muscle stem cells, tendon cells, all of these different stem cells, and we can make ligaments from them. We can make other tissues from them. Um, the quality of the tissue is different depending on what, what the source of the stem cell is, but you can do it. It's just a matter of... Um, and there's not really a great difference between an amniotic stem cell or, a, or, or um, so a somatic stem cell, like a, what's called a mesiangioblast. Those are the stem cells that surround all your blood vessels. So those cells don't really have a huge difference with them. It's when you take them out and you culture them, it's basically how you would get them to the tissue. And, and really a lot of people like Johnny Huard, who's at the, the at, uh, I think he's at, what is it, Aspen, they're one of the big regenerative medicine places. He used to be at Pittsburgh, um, but now he's out at, at one of these really high-end um, regenerative medicine clinics out in out in either Vail or, or yeah, somewhere Yeah, it would probably be Dr. Um, uh, the, or not Andrews, but uh, the Stedman Hawkins Clinic, maybe yeah. in Vail. So, and so what Johnny's done is he's, he's convinced that most stem cells within the body are actually what these mesiangioblasts. So they come in with blood vessels. So if you want to bring stem cells into a tissue, one of the big things you do is you increase blood flow and you increase angiogenesis, and that's going to bring in more stem cells as well. So there's ways that you can just modify what you're doing, what you're eating, what your, what your activity levels are that are going to promote some of these regenerative things as well. Interesting. On nutrition and loading, so I've read one of your papers on the benefits of vitamin C before training. So I know there's a, the fad of fasted going into exercise, and then there's a trend of high school students just going and not eating breakfast and then going right to sport. So what are some appeals and benefits that you found with vitamin C before exercise that we can try to push our coaches to push? Yeah, so, so one of the things that it's not vitamin C alone. We use vitamin C with uh, hydrolyzed collagen or gelatin because what we're trying to do there is we're trying to increase collagen synthesis. And again, we had talked earlier about the fact that collagen synthesis is important for performance. It's important for injury prevention. It's important for strength development. And so what we're doing when we're doing vitamin C and, and collagen is what we see in, in human study we did. Um, we've done a couple of human studies where we feed people vitamin C and, and either hydrolyzed collagen or gelatin. And you, what you see is that you get an increase in in um in markers of collagen synthesis, especially if an hour after you do that, you do your training. So, so we just have people jump rope for, for six minutes, again, stimulate the bones to make collagen. And then an hour before we give hydrolyzed collagen or gelatin and vitamin C. What you see is that four hours later, if you took a placebo, your collagen synthesis rate is lower than if you took hydrolyzed collagen or, or gelatin. And so, the reason that we add vitamin C in there is that vitamin C is required for um, is required for collagen synthesis. 
So there was a recent paper that came out that said ketogenic diet was really was not good for bone health. And it's entirely possible that it's true because if you, if people are on a strict ketogenic diet, their vitamin C intake is going to come down and it might be that they're not showing signs of, of, you know, they're not showing signs of scurvy. They're not showing classic signs, but they might be showing signs of early development of impaired collagen synthesis. And so that's something like, like consuming like liver or, or organ meats. It's, it's possible. Easiest way to fix it is just to add a little bit of vitamin C to the diet every day. Sure. Because, and then, and if you do that first thing in the morning, that's an easy way to, to combat that. So as far as, as far as those things, um, again, it's a question as to how much of the vitamin C is destroyed during cooking, as far as what's going to be in, in whatever you're eating. Um, and so, Again, the issue with liver is sometimes that's, our, that's, the, that's the animal's ability to detoxify. So that's where all of the heavy metal waste, the, well, the liver and bones are where heavy metal waste and other waste products are collected for, for uh, export. So, so it does have a little bit more issue with it that it's just not going to just be vitamin C that you're getting. Um, and we don't know what happens because all of the studies on the destruction of vitamin C have have really classically been done in boiling situations where you boil something, it's going to break down the vitamin C. It's mostly done in, in plant-based things to see how quickly you get rid of the vitamin C. So, so the, what we're trying to do with the hydrolyzed collagen and the, or, or the gelatin and the vitamin C, taking that an hour before exercise is we're trying to deliver that to the, to the connective tissues that we're working. Because unlike muscle where the, there isn't really an anabolic window for young active people, our tendons and ligaments don't have any blood supply to them. So they don't have this big blood supply that, oh, you just ate something, now we're gonna rush this huge amount of blood with all of these amino acids to them. And so what you actually get is as you pull on your tendons, you squeeze out the water, and as you relax the tendons, they suck in water from the environment. So as you're doing that, if that liquid in the environment has the amino acids that you need to make collagen, specifically glycine and, and proline are the two biggest ones that you need, then, and you have vitamin C, which is necessary for, for the processing and export of the collagen. Now what you can do is you can increase the rate at which you synthesize collagen with the hope of improving performance and decreasing injury rate. So what is the practical application? Like what are the food sources here? Jello. No collagen, like collagen protein. Yeah, so it'd be like, would it be like a, um, uh, well, but uh, is bone broth, does bone broth have rich <coughs> amount of collagen in it or no? Um, yeah, so so bone broth does have collagen in it, but it depends on. So there's a nice study out of Australia by Beck, Beck Al, uh, Alcott that shows that if she went to the same place and got bone broth four different days, she got different amounts of collagen uh, in the bone uh, broth. Shocker. Um, so so again, it's processing. It's all of those things. So. So normally when we're doing this with individuals, especially people who are growing or, or, they, we, or they're injured and we want to know the exact amount of collagen we're giving them, we'll give it as a supplement. But if we're going to do it from foods, we're going we're gonna to do it from the meats. Again, it's going to be your beefs, your, your, your fish, especially eating the skin. Uh, it's going to be your chicken, especially eating the skin, because again, those are collagen-rich things. Fish skin. Uh, I just something about my fish kids, skin. My kids, uh, whenever we eat fish, they fight for the skin, and Get they fight here. for the skin on the chicken. Get out of here! I throw that shit away. Which is, uh, I, I, and I, when I watch them do this, I'm like, <sighs> what do they inherently know that we well, don't? Not and, um, fish skin. But, but, Thanks, uh, Doc. Um, 
there are a bunch of collagen proteins and I've, I've had people, you know, uh, swear by it. And I've also had people be like, ah, it's a, it's a, you know, it's bullshit, but, um, it seems like an easy, easy change. Um, when you get into the loading and training for tendons, I mean, obviously there's three muscle contractions, you know, with isometrics, eccentrics, and a concentric contraction. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of people, especially we're talking about in the strength conditioning world, just focus on the cons or on the, uh, uh, on the concentric contractions, you know, like how fast are you moving that concentric, um, mm-hmm. do doing it, focusing on blocks of like eccentrics and isometrics in the training, uh, always was kind of, a, at least for me associated with, uh, you know, ligament connective tissue strengths. Do you still mm-hmm. see that to be the case? Uh, it depends on the velocity of the move. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, the treatment for an Achilles tendonopathy is eccentric loading. But it's not eccentric loading the way you would train an eccentric. It's not a drop dump the it's way you train in a right? gym. It's a very slow eccentric movement. And again, that's what we talked about earlier when we talked about the idea that a strength coach is actually training velocity. Because if I know that I need a slow movement to optimize my tendon health, now I can increase the weight. I'm going to make you move slowly, whether it's concentric, eccentric, or isometric. The tendon actually responds exactly the same to all three different types of contraction. If the load is exactly the same, the tendon response is exactly the same. So, so Michael Kerr's group has shown that because really all of them are just pulling on the tendon. So the muscle's doing something different. The tendon's doing the exact same thing. Um, and so its response is very similar. The big thing for the tendon is how fast you're doing the movement. Because if I do the movement slowly, I get that stress relaxation. I get some of these positive effects. If I do it really quickly, I don't have time for stress relaxation. I get stress shielding or I don't break. And we didn't really, we haven't really talked about how you would increase stiffness, but the way that the way that you do that is that when you move fast, the collagen molecules act as a sheet and you don't break any linkages between them. When you move slowly, the collagen molecules slide and you break linkages. And so you decrease stiffness. Yeah. But so, this is in relation to uh, intensity, let's say percentage of one RM. Like if I just move a lightweight mm-hmm. slowly, it's not going to have the same effect as if I'm trying to move a, like it, like if I try to like, let's say I squat like hundred percent of my one RM, the speed at which it, it moves, let's say it's 0.1 meters per second. If I take uh-huh. 50% of my one RM and I move at 0.1 meter, meters per second, it doesn't have the same, same effect. effect. Yeah. It's not going to have the same effect, but it's if you take any weight and you move it at a much higher speed, it's going to have a different effect on your tendon. So, so really the tendon is much more about the load and the velocity. Those things usually going together, obviously they're inverse of each other. So as the velocity is, is lower, the load can be higher, should be higher. And the reverse is true. If you have a lightweight, you're trying to move it as fast as you can. So when we do that, if you're doing very fast movements and you're doing plyometrics or you're doing eccentric loads quickly, the the jerk, which is the acceleration of the acceleration. So basically you're accelerating your body one way through gravity, and then you're trying to use your muscles to accelerate the opposite way. It's what we call plyometrics, but it's actually the technical um, physics term is jerk. And so that jerk is the, is the greatest damaging uh, force on your connective tissues because that's again it's if you're trying to break something you don't pull on it equally yeah you no um shear load quickly. yeah, yeah uh, static versus well, shear load it's different than that but yeah i understand what you're saying yeah like I, I i think about it like um you know like towing a car for example when you extend the chain and it's taut and then you accelerate you can pull a post from you know stepping your foot on the gas with a slack chain and then it's snapping 
Right. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so, okay. That makes sense. No, that's, that's actually really important, but it also sounds like there needs to be building blocks in place for collagen for it to heal. So yeah. That's a good one and that's why groups that do a lot of plyometric loads like CrossFit has a, has a greater plyometric component to the training programs. They were one of the early adapters of the collagen supplementation. You mm-hmm. saw them, you saw CrossFit, you know, CrossFit gyms bringing it in much earlier because there was this, and every time I would give these talks about, we just did this experiment where we showed that collagen, dietary collagen improves, you know, resilience of the connective tissues. Everybody would come up to me and say, oh, my rugby coach used to give us collagen before training, or my grandmother gave it when I, when I had growing pains. Or the, It wasn't something that was new. It was just something that people figured out that, you know what, every time this guy comes in and he eats this, he doesn't get injured and everybody else is getting it. Let's all try and eat that. Is there and an amount? That, is there like a daily amount that you would shoot for? So what we do is in a single dose, we would go for about 15 grams. We've shown to be um, really good. Um, it, we ha- we've done some dose responses. Five is not a, is not really different than control. 15 is 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 significantly different than control. 30 actually dips from 20. So so you it's about 15 to 20 grams is where we'd look to be. We don't know if there's a body weight component to it. So as you say, with protein, we know, okay, it's 0.25 grams per kilogram body weight per meal, but we don't know whether this is per, per body weight or anything like that. So, so we're still at the point where it's, you know, 15, 15 to 20 grams is really good. Um, we think that that's the range that we want to be in to be optimal. Cool. Hey, um, and um, we don't want to suck away your whole day, but I do have one question. He said he doesn't have much going on today, John. Uh, um, obviously, you're in the lab. I mean, it sounds like you have some really jiggy research that you guys are in the process of figuring out and, and have published a ton of stuff. And this is actually what you do on a daily basis. Uh, is there any misconceptions that you see floating around today in the fitness world that are just like, like splinters in your mind where you're like, dude, we've disproved this. We've curb stomped this. Why won't this go away? So there's everything from lactate causes your muscles to get sore. That's what's happening when you're, when you're like sprinting as hard as you can and you start feeling like, Oh, my muscles are starting to pull. So that was shown probably 30 years ago that that's, that's not the case, but people, athletes will still say, Oh, the lactate buildup, or we did a, you know, we're flushed out the lactate by doing a, a session the next day. Well, the reality is that lactate's gone from your muscles within about 30 seconds of rest, depending on how fit you are. It might take you up to three minutes to, to clear the lactate. So the fact that you're doing a session the next day, nothing to do with lactate. Um, there's, so those are, those are simple things. There's all kinds of different kind of fallacies that, you know, that if I stretch, it's going to decrease my injury, my musculoskeletal injury rate. Well, there's a meta-analysis that shows that there's, it has absolutely no effect on injury rate, whereas heavy strength training decreases injury rates by two thirds. Again, because you're moving slowly because it's a heavy movement, that's going to do what we talked about, increase muscle strength, decrease tendon stiffness, the system works better. Um, so, so the idea that stretching is, is super good for you, that you need to be really flexible. Well, well, we found that people that stretch too much were uh, like hypermobile, especially in like the yeah. positions where you don't want to be like, let's say the bottom of the squat. And yeah. uh, my thing is watching them do it. I'm like, dude, you're going to hurt yourself. You've effectively created, become too mobile in the positions where you want to be most stiff. Yeah. And if you're going to lift heavy weights, you have to have a certain level of stiffness just to protect yourself through their full range of motion movements. 
Absolutely. And so, so stiffness is a stiffness to injury rate is a U-shaped curve. If you're too stiff, you'll get injured. If you're just right, you won't get injured. And if you're too flexible, you'll get injured at a high rate as well. So, so those types of things that people have a hard time with, um, you know, a lot of it is that I have to do a lot of volume to build my muscle mass. So if I, if I want to build, if I want to get bigger and stronger, I need to do five sets, 10, there's really good evidence that shows that the, the amounts that you get from the first set, if you can go to failure, is about 95% of the total effect you're going to get from the training about. Sweet. So if you, so my training is just, just optimized my training you know, by that's 60 minutes. Like, um, I mean, Dorian Yates proved this with uh, his one set to failure. You know, he do all his yeah. warm-up sets, and it was, you know, and they always asked him how many reps, and he's like, well, you know, and it's the same thing Arnold said. It's the next rep. If I can get one yeah. more, then it's that next rep. It's whatever yeah. whatever rep allows me to go to failure. And if I can get it, then I got to get another one. And exactly. I always thought that was uh, interesting when people start talking yep. about reps and volume in this. Yeah, and so I tell my students here that the the gym on campus is the only place where failure is the goal. Mm -hmm. So so and it's really the goal because that's going to build your mass. Um, so we know that you build mass by going to failure. We know that you build strength by by lifting a heavy weight. But still, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems in there. Well, with the and then, uh, oh, sorry, I was just going to ask ahead. on the anabolic window. It sounds like because I mean, geez, if you were to Google it, you'll have hundreds of uh, hundreds of T Nation, who are <coughs> T Bag Nation, uh, you know, talking about this mythical anabolic window. And it sounds like it doesn't necessarily exist. But at what age and like kind of what is it? Is it a 12 hour? Is it a 24 hour? And has it become more important after the age of 40, 50, 60? So it becomes more important after the age of 40 if you've got really good, if you're decent metabolic health. So again, we're, our metabolic health is, is for many people is, is starting to break down. So as soon as that starts happening, the metabolic window becomes more important. So for a young, healthy, active person who's, who's not overweight, not anabolic windows at least 24 hours. For, for somebody who's got metabolic problems, either diabetes or other metabolic problems, or if somebody's getting older, what we see is that you need the exercise to get blood flow to the muscles that you want. Now the, that blood flow is going to take whatever you eat. So the anabolic window is much more real. So the original study done in Copenhagen was basically old people. You fed them either immediately after or two hours later. The old people you fed the exact same amount of protein two hours later didn't gain the same amount of muscle mass. They didn't have the same response. If you do the same thing with younger people, you're not going to see that. But it's really about the old people because the two-hour point is when blood flow is now back to normal. So you're not getting the additional benefit of delivering those amino acids to where you were. It, uh, would you say it's pretty accurate to say that you should eat for what you're going to do, not for not necessarily for what you did? Like I, 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 I like for a long time, I, I was, uh, you know, didn't like to eat in the morning because I'd get up and, uh, you know, we train at six and I just didn't like that full feeling. And so then I uh, as I saw kind of not being able to make the same performance gains. I just started getting up e earlier, like, you know, 45 minutes an hour before eating, uh, um, you know, like some oatmeal and some collagen or some whey protein or whatever it is in that hour before. And I noticed that I was able to have a greater training intensity. Yeah. So there's definitely the intensity effect, but there's also the anabolic effect because Kevin Tipton in 1999 showed that if you train, you do resistance exercise, protein synthesis goes up, but protein breakdown goes up even more if you're in a fasted state. It's only when you deliver essential amino acids that the synthesis goes up higher and the degradation goes down. 
because if you don't have the essential amino acids, if because you've just eaten them, what you've got is, or you've eaten them immediately after, what you've got is you've got this situation where you need to build protein. The only source of essential amino acids because you're fasted is actually existing muscle protein. You need to break it down in order to build. Sure. So you get into this cycle where you're actually in a negative balance unless you have eaten something, specifically essentials. And so, yes, your intensity is greater because you've got some carbohydrates that's going to help you do your movement. But then you've also got this idea of you've got the building blocks that you need to build the muscle mass. So if you're always training in a fasted state in the morning and you're not eating until three hours later, you're not going to get the same growth response as if as somebody who is training. And we always, when we go in and did evaluations on NFL teams, we tried to get them to do their strength training at five o'clock in the afternoon. Because it's five o'clock yeah. in the afternoon, it's right before dinner. They're going to go have their biggest protein meal of the day. They're not going to train again. They're going to sleep. All of those things are giving us the biggest anabolic effect because now overnight, while they're sleeping, they're building muscle mass. And then they're going to get up in the morning and they're going to get up and they're going to do their aerobic training, their, their position training. We're going to calm everything down. We're going to get them into metabolic, you know, they're going to get them back to, to baseline. Like and then we're going to do strength training. Yeah. We'll get them back there and then we'll, we'll do the strength training and then their biggest protein meal of the day. Hmm. So again, it's, but for some people, it's much more about, you know, that's not possible for everybody who's got a schedule. These are professional athletes. We can program it exactly. That's what's going to be best physiologically for the body's response. So what else? But, uh, yeah, we could just keep going forever. Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm always really fun. fascinated by because I mean we we've been you know power athletes been around for about ten years and uh, like one of the themes of this podcast and really the theme and really the as you guys know one of the underarching kind of uh, pillars of this entire project we're doing is called battle the bullshit where as a professional athlete I got an opportunity to train with the world's best and work with some really jiggy people and uh, I knew pretty well what I was doing within my training and diet was on point because I got an opportunity to go out and prove it in front of millions of people every Sunday and perform at the highest level. And I was able to do that for a number of years. And when I came out of that and when CrossFit approached me, there were so many misconceptions that I was like, man, I'm, I felt like the, the fitness world was lost. And I, um, and that was just for me looking at it from this point of view, whereas you were sitting actually in a clinical setting and doing research on these things to be able to look out there and kind of peer and be like, man, people are, uh, you know, subscribing to myths and this bro science and just so many of these misconceptions. I mean, I saw, um, you know, a deal the other day where, you know, an athlete tore a labrum and, you know, wasn't going to do surgery, was going to go and try to do all these PRP injections. And I wanted to be like, did that 10 years ago, didn't help. Like, yeah, you know, like, yeah. But so, you know, one of the, one of the big things is you can, there's certain things that you don't have to fix because you can compensate. So ACL, yeah, it just prevents anterior movement of the knee and rotational things. If you strengthen the quads and the hamstrings, you can stabilize the knee in other ways. But if you rupture your hamstring, it's not going to, you're not going to be able to fix that. You're, you're going to lose that. So you're going to compensate with something else. So you need to fix that. So there's certain things, yeah, I'm all, go ahead, do whatever you want. There's other things where, yeah, you're going to do that. You're not going to be able to do any of these movements. Um, and so, so again, it's, Look, there's so much stuff out there like the and you get the layers go crazy because if you go to 
certain people, they're, they're all about, oh, it's all about, you know, anabolic hormones are really important for growth. They're not, they have nothing to do with growth. If you take somebody who's got, who's, who's got prostate cancer and you give them an antiandrogen, they can't make any testosterone and you put them on a strength training program, they gain as much muscle mass and strength as somebody who's got perfect working testes and, and they can produce all the anabolic hormones. If it was required, you would see a difference. Women gain the exact same amount of muscle mass and strength as men in training. They don't start at the same spot because testosterone's function is to make you bigger, give you more muscle cells during puberty. But once you reach your adult stage, those anabolic hormones, they don't really have a huge effect. People are injecting themselves with growth hormone. That's going to increase your growth hormone for an hour. There's some longer lived products now that go for longer. But I can get you a bigger effect by just lifting heavy legs, making you do forced repetitions. Your growth hormone actually goes up higher and stays higher for longer than if you were inject more growth hormone. So there's all kinds of things that are around each different population's preconceived notions where they're, oh, yeah, it's all about hormones or, oh, it's all about delivering this in the anabolic window. Or it's well, all what about, about the bodybuilders to take these, uh, obs- you know, obscure or uh, obscene amount, uh, like volume of steroids, like a gram of test a day. And we hear these, you know, like we've had some, you know, power lifters and different guys on the podcast and, you know, I've met yeah. professional bodybuilders and just uh, the drug protocol is almost mind numbing. It is. And what they're doing is they're doing, usually they're, they're cycling between a number of different things. One of them is probably an IGF-1 or a growth hormone-based thing to give you some connective tissue because they learned years ago, if you just inject T, then basically you'll get big and you'll rupture stuff because you got your tendons suck. So you have to have some sort of a, a growth hormone IGF-1 component. Yeah, if you go up to these super, super physiological, pharmacological levels, then you're going to see an effect. But that's be, it's not actually because we're doing what they think they're doing, which is building more. It's actually that they're not taking out the trash because one of the things that growth or sorry, testosterone does is it prevents muscle protein breakdown. That's why Floyd Landis took it on one of the hard days of the tour de France, because you just have this huge stimulus that's going to now cause muscle to break down. If I can get in there and inhibit that, I'm going to perform better immediately the next day than all the other people are going through this physiological response. So what, testosterone does, and we've done some recent work on this, is it shuts down what's called the proteasome, which is the the garbage pathway. So you don't clear out, you don't get rid of the trash. So basically you're accumulating bigger and big volumes of trash. And that's why, again, the power lifters will use it for certain periods of time, but they're not, they're going to go off at large periods of time because they have to get rid of all the stuff that they've built up. Power, the, the bodybuilders, they don't, they don't lift the heavy weight are a huge amount of weight. They're lifting decent, but they're going to failure. They're knowing that they just need the muscle mass. They don't need the strength. So they don't need the muscle to function at a high level. They just need it to look good. So it doesn't matter to them whether it's high quality or low quality protein there in their muscle. It just matters what it looks like when they're in the small suit. Yeah, Speedo. Yep. Interesting. So you got one. I got one too. And I got to get going soon here in a minute, guys. Okay. Yep. Keith, quickly, the fun question, you mentioned muscles powering rockets. So I'm just curious, what's the strangest, maybe not accepted, science war room where somebody just kicked it out there to test the water? So you're talking like Armageddon, saving the world. With the, the, uh, yeah, what's the weirdest <laughs> idea that you were proposed for I'm, research? I'm, I'm a little nervous. That people were scared of because muscle rockets were accepted. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I don't know that there's much more beyond that. There's, there's a, yeah. That one is, uh, he kind of, it, it he was, threw the trump you know, card on that one. The extended it, cow? It, it was a huge moon shot, that one. Mm-hmm. The extended cow, you could actually do it because they know the difference. Like one of the, one of the things that gives you extra ribs, they study snakes that have super tons of ribs. And it's just this, a it's this cycle snake. that, Snake cow. <laughs> yeah, you'd have really nice shoe leather at the end of it. Uh, anyway, anyway, so so you could there you can see. So one of the cool things that one of my colleagues does that's really out there science. Basically, he takes he takes um, pigs and he essentially knocks out the gene for making a pancreas. And then he injects human embryonic stem cells into it and he implants it into a pig mom. And if you get a viable pig, it has a human pancreas. He's now doing this with a number of different things so that you could do basically grow up human tissues wow. in other animals. Let's yeah. get this man, them on the podcast. man bear pig. Yeah, <laughs> get them on the pair. All right, Lou, what do you got? So, Doc, I guess, you know, there's a lot of very high level and well thought out research that you Man, I'm sure some people are listening to this like super fascinated, want to get into it, but probably aren't smart enough. It's kind of speaking for myself. What are what are Dr. Keith Barr's 10 commandments to jit like here's the things you should do every day? And you know, 10 is flexible. Here's the things you should be doing every day to live a pretty gosh darn good, long, healthy life, you know, and going along the lines of like, you know, maybe the a sup like what are the what are the nutrients you should be focusing on? What should your training look like in a given week? So you're looking for like a takeaway that people could yeah, implement. The proverbial five commandments of yeah. Dr. Keith Barr. Yeah. So, so again, it's a lot of it is really basic mom stuff. Mm-hmm. Eat, eat your fruits and vegetables to some degree is still good because they have specific things that we need in order to process things, keep our blood pressure low, do a lot of things that are really outstanding for health. We need to go to failure in our lifts at least twice a week. And it doesn't have to be in a gym. You can do body weight and go to failure, but you need to go to failure twice a week. And it actually goes up as you get older, because again, you get less insulin responsive. So you need more of that stimulus to get the, the, the delivery of protein to those muscles. So, so at least lifting at least twice a week, going to failure when you do it. Um, and if you can do it in one set, that's fine. Then, Daily activity and really that's the core of everything is just daily activity. And then at least once a week, go hard so you can't breathe. So that activity gets you to the point where you're going as hard as you can. And then the last thing and probably one of the most important thing is never do, never immobilize anything. Mm -hmm. If you break something, if you do anything, if you damage a tendon, I twisted my ankle plane. I am soccer three weeks ago that night i'm doing all kinds of activity i'm doing all of these things it's at a slow rate it's going through the range of motion it's doing all of these things it's not designed to get a maximal stimulus it's just designed to keep the mobility and within three days i'm running again because Mm -hmm. that can turn really quickly as soon as i immobilize it for a period of time now i'm out two weeks before i'm back or even much, much longer. So don't immobilize anything and don't inject anything unless you're into your joints because none of it works. There you go. Hmm. And eat your fish skin. Shit. Ugh. Either that or you can supplement with collagen. It's, yeah. no, it's uh, not a big fish skin. 
<laughs> Both. Dr. Uh, Dr. Bart, thanks so much, man. Thank this you. Is, this is great, great yes. podcast, man. I appreciate you taking the time and, you know, battling through some connection issues. Yeah, no worries. No worries. You ever out? Thanks in, a lot. Let me know if you need anything, guys. You ever out in Austin? Uh, I was just there not too long ago. I went out and visited the guys at ARX and uh, didn't, didn't know you were out there, but... Uh, Next time. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. Awesome. I have a great... We'll, we'll buy you a chew, uh, pre-chewed steak. Yeah, pre-chewed steak or overpriced beef oh, rub. Get that, that, <laughs> that snake cow going. All Thanks, right. Doc. Take care. Right. Thank you. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. Kick the wheels right before the hammer strikes. So make sure the levels fall from low. I got them girls shining. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Follow Dr. Keith Barr and his research on Twitter at Muscle Science. Be sure to keep your eyes peeled at your local grocery store for the snake cow, which uh, Luke mentioned. I'm sure it is just weeks away from FDA approval. Until next time, bye!